Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to December's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. We are a day late and hopefully not a dollar short this month, but nevertheless, I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy. We're going to run through some of the key talking points from the last four to six weeks or so. Hey, Cormac, how are you doing? Hey, Matt. Good, good. Yourself? Well, that's the reason why we're delayed. Uh, unfortunately, I lost my voice last week. so um, oh, Carol, Carol singing? <laughs> yeah, Carol that singing? must have been it. That must have been it. Uh, none of these dodgy Asian flu bugs. But uh, yeah. hey, thanks for, for the hospital pass last month. But we will go through and um, outline where we've been uh, right and wrong this year. And I guess probably the, the most obvious place to start is in lithium prices. Yep. Going to hold my hand up. Got that wrong this year. Interestingly, some people got it right, certain banks, but I don't think they got it right for the right reasons. And if you look at a lot of the broker research that was out there at the beginning of the year, it was suggesting that lithium prices were going to fall because of a wall of new supply that was coming into the market. Actually, that didn't really come through. It didn't really come through at the expected time. But One of the reasons why lithium prices were a lot weaker than we expected this year was because demand actually wasn't that great. And demand wasn't that great because we built up a a fairly substantial inventory within the, call it the midstream, the middle of the supply chain last year, and in cells as well. And that meant that we didn't really get the sort of restocking demand in the beginning of this year that we had expected. So we had... um, Pretty substantial volatility, I think you would say, in, in lithium. It fell in the first quarter, it bounced in the second quarter, and then it's sort of been falling in the in the last of two quarters. And and certainly, you know, if you'd sat down at the beginning of the year, we weren't expecting lithium prices to be sub sort of $20 a kilo. Maybe sub $50 a kilo, but certainly not sub $20 a kilo. So gonna hold my hand up on that one. I think where we are now in a very sort of differentiated spot because now that spot com prices have fallen as well as yeah. we've talked about that then lowers the cost curve so you know we were talking about the marginal cost of production being at about sort of 20 25 a kilogram but with spot com prices down that's taken the marginal cost of production down quite a lot so yeah i think that uh, we will probably see substantially lower lithium prices in 24 than we saw in 23 and the big question i guess is uh, how much lower can they go Ooh, a lot of the analysts are saying we're at the bottom right now i think you might even said it brave man to say that you made a couple of good points the interesting thing is what you meant about the new supply at the beginning of the year the additional supply was forecast to drive down the price and the demand wasn't re- re- wasn't really seen, but you know the, this additional supply is almost dried up completely in China now at the moment due to these prices. I'm not sure that was the main driving force behind what we saw happening in the lithium markets throughout here in China. I think you 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 onto something when you talk about inventories. Inventories are still, even though they've been trying to destock basically for the last couple of months, 
I think destocking is going will be going on well into uh, Q1 2024 as well. I think we were starting to see certainly raw materials inventories fall in sort of August, September, to some extent in October. But what we started to see, according to the data, is seasonality in cathode manufacturing. So cathode production's actually fallen. So even though we've lost a little bit of lithium supply in China due to low prices, we also lost quite a lot of demands due to seasonality or, or, or what now seems to be seasonality. And that's potentially led to a buildup in raw materials inventories. So I think we're looking at quite a sloppy raw material inventory situation into the beginning of next year. And it's hard to see any sort of restocking ahead of Chinese New Year. And it's quite a late Chinese New Year this year. I think it's around about the 10th of February. It's difficult to see any sort of fundamental drivers for lithium prices before Chinese New Year, I would say. In terms of lithium metal, yeah, well, there could be a, a driver that's not often commented in by analysts upon uh, by analysts because they believe every ton of capacity is battery grade or minimum technical grade. But <laughs> oh, get in there! Come on. <laughs> there's a slight chance that not everything coming into the market is going to achieve the grades required by OEMs. Are China, you going to talk about the Guangzhou situation? Yeah. Guangzhou Futures Exchange, GFE, has seen a pretty big bounce in their um, January contract in the last couple of days because, you know, it's a physical delivery exchange and deliveries have been arriving, but they haven't been passing muster. This is a real issue. And I mean, this is something we've been banging on about on Recharge for, what, two, three years now about the quality of lithium carbonate and how not all lithium carbonates created equal. I think some Chinese traders are finding out about that to their detriment uh, over the last couple of weeks or so. Yeah, and it could carry on as the January contract's going to mature end of January. It could be a little bit of trouble there if everyone thinks they're getting uh, battery-grade lithium. I think it's like 120,000 tons in that contract. Let's just comment here. I mean, I, I think there is the perception in the market that obviously all lithium carbonate is battery-grade. That's not correct. But there is a perception if you hit the required purity level, which I think is something like 98.5 or something, then that's battery grade. And that's not correct either, because it it is the required purity level, but it's also the impurity levels. If your lithium carbonate happens to have, say, 40 parts per million iron, and the impurity level of of the specification is 20 parts per million iron, then your product is not battery grade uh, and it's not acceptable, even if it's. 98.5% 98.5% purity. So I think there's been um, a lot of uncomfortable realizations among traders as to what is and isn't battery grade in this market. You know what's interesting, what's happened over the last month or so is the brine grades, uh, the lithium carbonate from brines in both China and Latin America are substandard too. The grades are very just for the uh, recent shipments, there's, yeah. there's variance on the, in the shipments as well. Uh, more that, on the that, sodium, potassium levels. Yeah. I mean, that's been a, a problem in Latin America for a long time. I mean, I, I, I've i had uh, knockdown drag outs with a few bulge bracket analysts over my time talking about sort of how they factor in that 100% of, of Latin American brine production is 
is battery grade. I mean, that's not even the case from existing producers, let alone new developers coming into the market. And in fact, we've seen that from the um, the new Orchem project in Argentina, nearly called it Orocobre, whoops, and the new uh, Lithium Argentina project also pushed out their ability to produce battery grade material. They said they wouldn't be able to do it until the middle of next year. So, uh, you, you know, that there is a, a an issue that even though you're producing lithium carbonate, may not be battery grade lithium carbonate. And if you then take your lithium carbonate and upgrade it to battery grade, then you're going to have recovery losses. Uh, and that that's not factored into a lot of people's models. Yeah, well, it's the big, the big thing at the moment with the substandard uh, lithium carbonate at these prices, especially if you're going to lithium hydroxide, it's, it's a loss-making exercise to upgrade it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, you know, it's a very sort of interesting situation. I do think that prices are closer to the bottom. I'm not going to say they're at the bottom, but I do think they're pretty close to the bottom, certainly closer to the bottom than they have been. And I, I think the other thing that people should be aware of is obviously we hear a lot about the African spot con coming and uh, about the very low mining rates, costs even. And indeed, you know, the cost of mining in Africa is very low. But I think people are massively underestimating the transportation infrastructure costs. And I think that that is very relevant. And I'm not necessarily just talking about the thousands of kilometers that the material has to be trucked from the mines to the port. I'm also talking about port congestion. So if you look at, for instance, the South African ports, 30 days, basically, for the ships to be sitting around there to unload and load at the moment. And if you think how much the demarage charges are going to be on that, that's going to probably raise your your cost of, of transport by probably 30, 50, maybe $100 a tonne. Then obviously, if we have these issues around the Red Sea starting to build up and causing freight rates to increase again, that's going to have sub substantial impacts on the economics of the lithium trade. So I think people have to be aware that infrastructure around these African projects is potentially a little bit more fraught than some analysts would have you believe. Yeah, it's an interesting case. There's the uh, West African lithium as well, which I'm hearing a lot about these days coming out of Nigeria. And those guys are quite bullish. They're not all necessarily Chinese either. Quite bullish about the opportunity for them to ship enriched concentrated ore to, to China. I mean, I... the competitive edge between that and Australia, which, you know, as you said, spodumene prices are Almost down to where when we first started talking about spodumene, I think it was like four or five hundred bucks a ton, thousand. You know, we watched the ride go up. Now let's see it go back down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's going to go all the way down because I mean I think the other thing that that's really important to bear in mind is that actually operating costs have increased. So you know when we first started doing the podcast, I, I think you know in the dead days of two thousand and nineteen and two thousand and twenty, I mean operating costs were around about sort of. $450, $400 a ton, and, and that's where prices were as well. Operating costs are nowhere near that now. Operating costs are way more than that. So I don't think that there's any way that, that, that prices could go down to materially lower than $1,000 a ton on a CFR China basis. 
$1,000 a ton on a CFR China basis. You've got to back out stuff like VAT. You've got to back out freight costs. You've got to back out royalties. You've got to back out across land transportation costs and demurrage costs and things like that. For a mine gate operating cost, you're probably talking maybe around about $600, $700 a ton. And uh, you know a lot of operations are above that. I think that operating costs are substantially higher than they than they were previously. Weren't they last making exercises though back in 2019? And then weren't the operating costs a lot well, higher? Well, well, some of them were, and I mean, All some right. of them went bust. Some of them genuinely went bust or had to stop production. So I think there are a couple of high cost producers which could go bust again. I mean, stuff like Green Bushes got what something like a two hundred and fifty dollars per ton mine gate operating cost. That's not going to go bust. But some of the more high-cost assets that perhaps are producing much more lower-grade material, they may struggle. Yeah. And that's in Western Australia. In Africa, where, again, you've got lower-grade material and Low grade, yeah. infrastructure costs and potentially freight issues, it becomes even more complex. So I genuinely feel that there isn't a hell of a lot more actual downside in prices. Having said that, do I think it's going to be a U-shaped recovery? I'm afraid I don't. I think prices could bounce, and I think prices will be much more cyclical yeah. off the bottom. But do I see prices going back to sort of $50, $60, $70 a kilo anytime soon? No, I really don't. Maybe yeah. we will see an average level of prices, which is around sort of $20, $25 a kilo over the next yeah. sort of two to three years or so. But um, I, I, I don't really see prices spiking again anytime in the next sort of 12 to 18 months, I don't think. On uh, spodumene or carbonate, right? On lithium, really. And then I think the other battery raw materials is very interesting. And I guess this plays into another thematic, which is worth talking about, which is that the BNEF battery pack price survey came out at the beginning of December, sorry, the end of November even, that talks about the average pack price falling to $139 a kilowatt hour. And indeed, the average sell price around about just over $100 a kilowatt hour with LFP sales, you know, materially below that. And I think that's very interesting as well. Obviously, a lot of that is off the back of, of weaker lithium prices, but let's also be realistic that pretty much everything across the battery spectrum has been weak. So nickel prices have been weak, cobalt prices, yeah. manganese prices, phosphate prices, graphite prices, everything has been weak at the same time. The materials that don't have metals in it, separators, electrolyte, yeah. they've been relatively robust. Yeah, we should talk about electrolyte salts again. When you have lithium added, the price yeah. is all over the place. But the materials without out, uh, metals are relatively stable. I suppose that's fair because, I mean, you're looking more at oil and gas as your base and, and yeah, that hasn't yeah. been as volatile. On the metal side, you know, if we are correct and we're moving into a global synchronous recovery next year, then metal prices are going to bounce. So you do wonder how low sell prices and pack prices can stay on an average basis. Now, my gut feeling is that because there's a lag in the data, battery prices will probably fall again in 2024. But will they remain low in 2025 and 2026? Bets are off on that. And, you know, it's great that we've seen sell prices and pack prices come down. It's certainly 
aids to the profitability at the OEMs and EV makers and makes EVs more affordable. But are we back to an environment now where we will see continuous declines in prices? I'm not convinced. So what do you think? These numbers, I believe, are not a true reflection of what's going on in the market. China, the battery makers are at each other's throats at the moment. There's uh, almost a battery company a month failing. Uh, we just had a big one recently, uh, started December, which is JEVE, not EVE, but very similar. Uh, big mm. company, big contracts with OEMs. They haven't folded, but they've they're on a holiday. I think the term they're using is. But um, with the lithium prices down, LFPs also falling through the floor. There is a artificial price war going on on the cell level uh, mm. between the Chinese battery makers, similar to what we saw with the EV price war, which is yeah. being reignited again. I think it's difficult for the cell makers because they're kind of stuck between the the rock of the raw material prices. And the hard place are the OEMs. And I think the OEMs are really playing hardball with the cell makers. They're pushing down margins to the nth degree. And unless you've got scale, like yep. CATL or BYD or LG or Samsung SDI or whatever, yep. it's a real struggle. Yeah, CATL have lost half their market value since July 2021, their peak, their peak market value oh, when they were trillion RMB the first trillion dollar or trillion RMB company. There's a trend in China, and we can somewhat see it in Europe as well, where the OEMs, one famous Chinese CEO said, I'll not work for a battery company again, in terms of all the profits are going to the battery companies, and they're building their own battery plants. And, you know, we can see mm -hmm. Stellantis and a few others, Volkswagen as well, building their own battery plants um, and not wanting to work with the uh, with CATLs of the world. BYD, again, is kind of an well, OEM. We'll, we'll see battery. how successful they are, though, on building those plants, because... Well, oh, they've built some know. of them. In China, they've built them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Zeker. Zeker just came out with an unbelievable battery pack uh, quite recently. But Neo, again, wants to build their own battery uh, plant. So, you know, the industry is constantly evolving. Who knows if it's a winning strategy, but uh, it, the margins are super tight at the moment. I agree with you. Metals go up, prices go up, demand goes up for EVs. I think sell prices will also go up. Yeah, I think there's a pretty reasonable correlation between raw material prices and sell prices. But the only problem is, is whether the sell manufacturers can exact pricing power. The problem that we see in China is because we've seen the overbuild in the LFP supply chain. For the oh time God, yeah. being, the cell manufacturers do not have pricing power. So it's really only if demand comes back to the market in a big way that they're going to be able to get that. This is emerging, and you've been in, a, in the industry. Like, this is emerging as this is a pure mining metal industry, basically now, rather than technical. All the profits, the margins, revenues are driven by the price of commodity metals. Well, you say it's a pure mining metal industry, but... They say pure, you know, but yeah, it's <laughs> they're, got they're, all the hallmarks. I think the only manufacturers who are actually making money at current prices are the first and second generation lithium producers. So the low, yeah. you know, the very low cost lithium producers. Those are the only people in the industry who are making money at current prices. Everywhere else, we're in the cost curve. Cobalt works because it's a byproduct from copper and nickel production. 
there's only one pure play cobalt producer out there, but prices are at multi-year lows. Nickel prices are at multi-year lows. They're in the cost curve. Manganese prices are at lows. They're in the cost curve for HPMSM producers. Phosphate yeah. prices have fallen. Graphite prices, they're in the cost curve. You say that, I mean, maybe metal prices are controlling, you know, where sell prices go, but really there's not a lot of money being made in the sector at the moment. I was thinking earlier when you're talking about lithium, in your, your BMR lithium basket, have you seen any casualties in the last 12 months? Casualties? Junior miners, junior uh, there have been lots of casualties, lots of PA losses, I think uh, could be said. Yeah, I mean, it's been a real struggle for, I think, investors over the last sort of six months or so. And I think companies are struggling to raise funds. But in terms of actual producers, no, we haven't really seen casualties at this stage. But there could very well be casualties if hard rock prices go lower. We're getting to a point now where there are probably one to two hard rock producers out there which are pretty close to the marginal cost of production now so if early stage producers will, will struggle if if spot com prices go lower than this we won't see pressure on the brine producers because their operating cost is is much lower but for the um for the hard rock producers and similarly in china i think we'll start to see a lot of pressure potentially for the for converters as well. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting year to see who can who's going to be able to survive. And then you have like Exxon ent entering the field, right? Promising hundreds of thousands of tons of lithium by 2027, I think is the So yep. what's that do? Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously you've got Exxon, you've got other DLE developers. Exxon obviously back themselves with their sort yeah. of ability to drill, etc. But We'll see whether they're able to do it over time, and particularly whether they're able to do it to the tonnages that they're talking about, and whether they're able to do it to the tonnages of battery-grade material that they're talking yeah. about. We've also got the Chinese looking to sort of develop in uh, DLE in Bolivia. All you right. know, they're, they're, they're uh, starting to work on those projects now as well. That'll be a couple of years. It'd be very interesting the next couple of years to see whether these projects work as expected or, or whether they get delayed. I'm not what happened the uh testing against anybody in the Bay market. Project. That, what happened uh, that one? That's about three. Yeah, years history now. has shown these things tend to get delayed. Yeah, true. Uh well, we got the uh the update in the IRA now. Permitting is supposed to be expedited, uh, especially in, uh, and, uh, they're going in smack over it, right? That's in Nevada, is it? It's in Arkansas. Arkansas. That's uh, it. Arkansas yeah, that's and it. Texas, yeah. It's going to be very interesting. I mean, in, in the US, obviously, you've got the smack over formation in, uh, in Arkansas and on the Texan border. And you've obviously got the Salton Sea in California, which uh, I know we've talked about before. And then you've got the oil field brines in in Western Canada. So it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, whether these things work. But I think across the board, they're going to come in much, much more capital intensive than, than perhaps people are, are assuming they will. And I think that's maybe why it makes sense for oil companies like Exxon to yeah. look at 
DLE because the capital intensity is huge. Juniors won't be able to afford it. But if they can get it to work, it will be bottom quartile or, or second quartile of the cost curve and, and should be a viable technology for them. Well, it's been a couple of recent announcements from Vulcan, right? Uh, in terms of their overall capex, I think it's decreased by 100 million or so. And uh, after going up quite a lot. <laughs> oh, right. And they're kind of dual plants. I think they have a phase one, phase two. Phase one is the lithium chloride phase. And phase two comes in in a 2026, which is the lithium hydroxide. Interesting to know what they're going to do with the lithium chloride for a few years. Mm, I think they've been yeah. what uh, is it? Glencore or Trafigora to take the uh, chloride. It will be interesting to see how that goes. I think that a um, number of these projects, they've still got to get licensing, etc. So, uh, yeah, let's... Oh, uh, in let's, Europe, that's going to be no problem. Let's wait for that to happen before we get too excited about these things. Did you not read the CRMA? 16 months for... Uh, 25 months for extraction projects, 16 months for processing. Yeah, if that we'll, will ever we'll happen. Wait, we'll wait <laughs> yeah. until we see it. <laughs> Yeah. But but to to guess included in that you have to get sign off by every single com- uh, country in the EU. So um, yeah, let's let's. Uh, I'm not holding my breath for that to happen. Anyway, fingers yeah. crossed. Just want to talk a little bit about EV sales growth. One of the reasons why everybody's so negative on the sector at the moment is because everybody has been uh, saying how weak EV sales growth is going to be. Oh no, it's not weak at the moment, but it's going to be weak soon. And indeed, we've been hearing that since sort of July, August this year. But doesn't really seem to be weakening. I mean, it's still growing. Global growth still up, what, 37% year on the year, year to date, October. It looks like everybody's sort of playing the funeral march for EV sales, but nobody's told EV buyers that, particularly yeah. not in China. Yeah, we just crossed the uh, million unit threshold in uh, November. So quite a milestone. And now it has to be remembered the, uh, a certain portion of that is uh, PHEVs, but still. In total, it's up to close to 35% market penetration in China, which is phenomenal, or way ahead yeah. of what we are predicting a few years ago. To, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm I'm very happy to lump PHEVs in with BEVs because I think I still think it's a it's an important and relevant part of the industry. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the Chinese PHEVs is that the yeah. average battery size is much higher than for a Western plug-in hybrid electric. So, I mean, I think the average battery size for a, for a Chinese PHEV is about sort of 25 kilowatt hours, whereas for, for a Western one, it's much lower than that. So it's still a reasonable battery size in terms of, you know, demand for material, etc. So I'm, I'm quite happy to, to chuck my Chinese PHEVs in with my BEVs. Oh, um, yeah. And as you I, say, the penetration I check them, I check them out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I check them in. Get out. Yeah. You still got a gasoline tank and I'm out. Yeah. Is it an electrified vehicle or a gasoline vehicle? I don't know. But uh, no, no, it's, they're, you know, actually, the their sales is increasing uh, like yeah. double digit every month in China. They have real appetite for the... Very, um, very rapid growth. BYD's got some really successful PHEV models. Some of the other Chinese um, OEMs are, are doing it now. And to tell you the truth, I, I mean... I've always thought that PHEVs are a nice sort of in-between tech, and they make a lot of sense up until that point where 
we get to a high enough energy density that that's uh, and enough supply of raw material that you can you know you can go ahead and and produce enough BEVs for the world but uh, up until that point i think PHEVs even companies with uh, you know products with range extenders make a lot of sense with the naysayers on the EV market in the last couple of months uh Tesla uh, sorry Toyota's been getting a lot of slaps in the back going oh you guys are right after all because PHEVs are growing in Europe US everywhere uh, this year uh, and 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 uh, Tesla's been our Toyota's been seen as smart about the strategy of pursuing with the PHEVs when the whole world but, was rallying but Tesla's against them. more more uh, sorry Toyota's more HEVs isn't it just hybrids they're not plug-in hybrids they're more well they have PHEVs as well but yeah, yeah yeah you're right you're right I think Toyota's still a long way behind and they got quite a lot of catching up to do so yeah, um, they're pouring a lot of money into EVs now yeah um, in, sorry uh, they have this uh, US gigafactory battery factory and originally it was for the ER, the hybrids, but um, now they, they've, I think they've halved it, five lines hybrid batteries and five lines EV batteries. It's going to be 30 gigawatt hours. But yeah, they have poured significant, are, are, are suggesting they'll pour significant funding into EVs. But um, now we're seeing, as you said, you know, a couple of battery factories, EV factories being hitting the pause button. I think we discussed it last month in terms of... Yeah, and I guess that's probably worth just talking about here because I think that has implications in the midstream and the the upstream of the raw materials area as well. I mean, you know, we've seen Ford, we've seen Volkswagen, uh, we've seen GM all announce slowdowns of their EV rollouts. And that then has had implications on the battery rollouts. We've seen, you know, a number of delays to, to sell factories in the US and in Europe. And the big yeah. question then is whether that's going to start to impact on the midstream and on the upstream. So are we going to see sort of, you know, cathode project delays? Are we going to see raw material project delays? Yeah, what, what we, we, we've already seen it in uh, in Korea. Copper foil, mm. I think, was one of the first casualties. Corey Zinc, we're building a copper foil plant and have hit pause on that as well. Yeah. Um, but we've seen a pretty aggressive build out on the cam side of things, basically, or beginning to see aggressive build out just to satisfy the IRA. That will continue to happen, I believe, on the cam side. I don't know how we're going to compete with f- almost 4 million tons of LFP capacity in China. I don't know how they're going to keep that out of Europe and US. That they're going to have an unbelievable amount of excess LFP cam. To tell you the truth, I see very little chance of setting up any sort of raw material supply chain for LFP in Europe. So you're going to need that Chinese cam. At the moment, iron sulfate not available in Europe. You know, high high purity. Phosphoric acid not available to the right scale in Europe. As we've discussed time and time again, lithium carbonate not really available to the high, you know, high levels of demand in Europe. I mean, we're going to need Chinese LFP cam for certain, probably for yeah. the next five, six, seven, eight, maybe 10 years until Europe and the US really gets its, its act together on an LFP supply chain. I um, mean, a little bit different on the ternary supply chain because there are sources around the atlantic basin 
and not to say that there aren't sources of, of phosphate material around the Atlantic Basin, because there are a lot. Canada, Brazil, Morocco have yeah. all got sources of phosphate. The US as well has got sources of phosphate, but we're talking about enough high quality phosphate and also iron sulfate to supply an LFP supply chain. There just isn't enough of it around. Yeah, that is quite clear. Definitely not in Europe. US might be in a better position, but again, you know, there's going to be 3 million tons of, of this stuff floating around in China. It's going to make its way out. Although the EU, with the new CRMA, which phosphate's on, I believe, you can't source six, more than 65% from one country, one region. But, um, you know, I don't, so the CRMA's got these uh, restrictions. And what, what's the stick? I don't get, there's, I don't see what the penalty is if you don't satisfy, because um, you're not getting subsidized. Well, it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see what the stick is and also how realistic the stick is as well. Because, I mean, we've obviously got these new rules coming in between the EU and the UK at the beginning of next year, 1st of yeah. January 24, which are completely non-viable at the, at the current time. I mean, they're going to sort of result in something, I think it's uh, for an article 5 billion euros versus of additional cost for vehicles moving between the EU and the UK for the yeah. industry because these rules were brought in without any understanding of the viability of developing a raw material supply chain. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see whether... Is there a lot know, of vehicles moving between the UK and Europe? You know, well, I, I, it's not we so drive much it, the, the wrong side, right? Yeah. Parts. Yeah, yeah, the parts. Oh, right. Yeah, so it's going to be very interesting to see another great example of the EU over-regulating before the supply chain was in place. Crazy. Yeah, well, that was our job, right? We've been here long enough. We were supposed to tell somebody. <laughs> I wasn't invited, though. I wasn't invited to the No, I, I didn't, commission. unfortunately, get an invitation either. But uh, <laughs> maybe yeah. they lost my address in the post. Yeah, it went to your old address. You're right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, we'll call it a day there. I will say thank you to Cormac and uh, Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to all of our listeners. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you in... Uh, 2024. Yeah, yeah. Delighted to talk to you again, Matt. I uh, wish all everyone all the best for 2024. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for December. Uh, as always, you can get more detail on all of the topics we've discussed and indeed many more that we don't have time to discuss on a monthly basis in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.